Welcome to Healing the City podcast. Today I have a special guest, Barbie. Thank you for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) And Barbie and I actually don't know each other very well. We both attend the evening service and you have been coming to the village for about how long? Uh, we moved here and have been attending regular for eight months. However, over the years, because of our connection with Rod Hugan, we've been visiting over the past 20, 30 years oh, wow. w- with whatever church he's at. <laughs> yeah. So that was your connection to bring you to the church. I didn't right. know that. Yeah. Hmm. And you and Wayne bring a youthful spirit. <laughs> <laughs> we have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you probably are like the grandparents in some ways of the church. Yes, we uh, came fully expecting to play that role and uh, whatever it brings with this, as well as friends and um, helpers and part of the community. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great to get to know you guys and have you at church and um, and the interactions that I've had. And, of course, the famous Sunday when Rod, I don't even remember what the sermon was when you guys skipped up. Oh, to he, t- he was talking about, I believe, the excitement of uh, knowing your God's people and in meeting each day with joy. I may be way off here, but I'm thinking on my feet or on my, you know what? (laughs) Anyway, um, and he said that he had gone to practice and had hurt his leg. So Wayne leans over to me and he said, we're going to skip up there Mm -hmm. for uh, communion. And so that's what we did. And it it was so funny. Yeah. And it felt good for us, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think on that particular Sunday, Bentley was offering communion. Yes, he was. So you two went skipping up, and then my son was standing up there with the bread and the yes um, juice and offered it. So it was, for me, a, a special memory. Yeah. It was really fun for him to hold the bread for us and uh, and the cup yeah. to dip. Yes. Hmm. So we're going to be talking today about your work in uh, the prison system. Right. So you worked, um, why don't you just go ahead and just kind of take us through some of the journey of um, working there, and then I'll ask you some more specific questions um, that might interest our listeners. And if, if I want to clarify anything, I'll just um, stop you and ask you what that means. Um, To start with, I had no intention of doing that on purpose, (laughs) working at the prison. However, I had an interest in administration of justice and got my degree in administration of justice. And the professor in charge of that particular uh, area of expertise was somebody who I became really good friends with. And he let me know that there were uh, there was a new prison, Perryville, out in West Phoenix, a uh, prison being built, and that I should probably apply. And I did, thinking I would go in and be a counselor. And uh, But they hired me as an officer. I was 28. Um, I had been around the block already, 
and I knew a lot of things, but boy, was I going to learn a lot more things. So I started my employment in March of 91, uh, 1991, as an officer, and worked my way up through the ranks over the years as deputy warden. I worked with male and female inmates, and uh, lots of lots of things happened on inmate side and staff side along the way. So it was a pretty interesting journey. Yeah, it it sounds interesting, and from you know our previous talk of just kind of learning some of the things. So one of the things that you talked about when we talked on the phone was. Um, some of the job requirements that you didn't anticipate. Right. Um, well, I was really interested in, you know, asserting myself. I, I didn't really know the rules that women weren't supposed to be working there. But there was a lot of um, resistance from the male uh, staff members. And my captain, who happened to be pro-women, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, he assigned me as a work crew leader for the outside trustees because the prison had not been completely built yet. or It, it was built, but it wasn't finished. Mm-hmm. So there was still welding and painting and plumbing and different things that had to be completed. So I was given a crew of 21 inmates, uh, again, outside trustees, and I had to learn how to use a dump truck and drive a one-ton flatbed pickup and use the welder and understand all the parts. Um, and I got sent to an unopened unit with these guys and without a radio and without security backup. Which is, from my understanding, kind of unheard of, right? That, that right. You should have had those things. I should have had those things. But... It was a great learning experience, and I actually learned how to be a good officer with the outside trustees. They kind of... And who who are outside trustees? They are minimum security inmates that have uh, proven a history while in prison of uh, being no disciplinary actions against them. Their crimes are more minor than... Uh, like probably wouldn't have someone for murder in minimum security. Uh, So they were lesser crimes and more trusted, and that's why they're called trustees. So, uh, and they could work with or without supervision, but obviously (laughs) we're in a place where they had to have supervision, so I got to do that. Mm. And so they were kind of teaching you how to weld and how to navigate the truck. Well, yeah, because, you know, in the male um, side of, of inmate population, they tend to be more racial, um, meaning that they like to, the whites might stick together or the Hispanics and the blacks, and they that's their group um, formation. And so I got to know in the outside trustees who the leaders were in each of those areas, mm-hmm. which proved very beneficial yeah. <laughs> later on. So you can um, take these off if they're not, if they don't fit your 
It's okay. Okay. Eric will cut that part out. <laughs> I'll tell him. Um, okay. I just want to make sure you're comfortable. So then from that work, um, you were, like, after you were done, or w- once that project was complete, then what happened next? Um, then I went back to uh, working at the minimum security unit where they brought in the rest of the inmates who were not um, outside trustees but were minimum security. And I worked in there and then got assigned to a female unit and um, as an officer. And I was assigned to the area of uh, maximum supermax where they were locked down 23 hours a day including a death row inmate mm-hmm. so inmates who are locked down 23 hours they just stay in their cell and then they get an hour of, of daylight and right and usually in uh, the circumstances they don't come out together there's uh-huh. a schedule so it's rotating where one would come out at a time. Uh-huh. And I'm guessing your position in the prison doesn't allow for your opinions or your, um, It's you just do what you're told, right? Absolutely. A, but the rules I believe I paid more attention to were God's rules about humanity and trust and um, honesty and fairness. And so... I did share my opinion <laughs> more than probably I should have, but at the same time, it was seed planting. Mm. And like I said, I, I felt like I had permission, at a calling actually, mm. to do that. So, What kinds of things did you advocate for or, or share? Well, at first it was people observed my behavior and that I was happy and positive uh, and mostly I'm talking about the inmates here mm-hmm. and and uh, just a little comment like I would like what you have mm. or how can you have that kind of uh, optimism when you're here you know so I got to share a little bit of testimony or you know what it takes to get that kind of peace mm-hmm. you know and uh other times it could have just been uh, as I went up through the ranks. I I did go to be a counselor for a while, so I had more one-on-one time with all the inmates on my caseload, and so we would talk about and zero in on specific areas of their life mm. that they might want to pay more attention to, and it always provided an opportunity to plant a seed mm-hmm. during a conversation. Yeah. Not, not a, you got to come to Jesus right? kind of thing, but more of this is how it happened in my life, mm-hmm. you know. And you can have that kind of peace, too. Mm-hmm. Was counseling for them mandatory? Yes, but the counselor in traditional means uh, definition is different because a counselor there, although you speak to them one-on-one, uh, your role is more of helping them prepare for parole, mm-hmm. doing all the paperwork for appeals it, to help them uh, get ready for court, mm-hmm. things like that. So, But I took the responsibility of actually 
talking with them and paying attention to them and and dealing with their issues mm-hmm. too. And in fact, my notes were so copious that on two different occasions, on two different units, um, mail escaped in each one of those. And because of my notes, they were able to uh, garner where he might have gone and both times were captured, Mm. you know. It's Mm -hmm. not something that's like a big deal when you work there. Right. But I felt good about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you worked with both men and women, as you have said, and um, one of the things that we were going to talk about is the differences that you experience in working with men and women well, uh, I talked a little about the structure that men employ mm-hmm. inmates, which was more of the uh, different race sticking together. And in the women, they form family structures. Oh, interesting. It, it, it might uh-huh. sound odd, but, you know, there'd be grandma and there'd be mom. And and they actually take roles of uh, father, mother, Mom, dad, brother, sister, and uh, you know, uh, age is respected in women. In women in uh-huh. the prison system, uh-huh. everybody watches out for the older ladies. Um, oh, really? Yeah. It's more looking out for the elderly. Yeah. Uh huh. Just and because they're more vulnerable. Um. Yeah. And, or and sometimes they may just be more powerful. But they, and they'll respect them. Mm-hmm. There you go. You're fine. Um, so, but it's interesting because uh, families change and grow just like outside, mm-hmm. you know, and people come in the system and go out of the system. So it's very interesting. But say we have a lockdown where there's an emergency lockdown and we want to do a count just because uh, somebody thinks uh, somebody's out of area that they're not supposed to be out of. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and the store is, inmate commissary store is running, and there's a line. If you go to the men and you say, emergency lockdown, I need you to go to your room, they turn around and they go to their rooms. Mm-hmm. If you tell the line of women, they'll go, wait a minute, I was next in line, and I'm going to be uh, missing my position, you know, and lose my store, and, you know, why do we have to do that? What's the matter? Why are they calling it? You know, mm-hmm. and so you have to take a little more time Interesting. with them and say, look, I'll make sure you get, in, you know, back in your position in line. The store knows who's supposed to be next, you know, and uh, you just need to take care of this right now and and uh, shouldn't be that long. You can come back out and resume, you know. And it was kind of a normal thing anyway to have counts mm-hmm. like that. So um, they would eventually comply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So you worked um, in Tucson for a while, and Phoenix in a while, and and um, some of those as you move as you moved 
It was more like moving up in your position. Right. So what were some of the responsibilities that you gained over time? Well, one of the things earlier on, after I went to a female unit, I became the reception officer um, for new inmates. And what's interesting is all women in the state of Arizona who were convicted of a crime and sent to prison had to go through me. Um, I was the one that would give them orientation and do the uh, diagnostic testing and and you do that with each person individually or in groups? They usually come in in groups okay. once in a while, one or, or alone or two, mm-hmm. but mostly little groups of five or, or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a shower. They had to be strip searched. There was a shower. Um, I would issue their bedding and assign their rooms and so forth. But when they came in from the jail system... They were happy to be there. They they were in a more sturdy, stable place, and uh, but a lot came in broken, vulnerable, uh, down. Some coming off of drugs, some still high, um, and I treated them like people, you know. And if, if somebody said they were cold, I would wrap a blanket around them, you know, just. Mm-hmm just as a humane thing. Mm-hmm. But those kind of things came back later on, and uh, I would see somebody out and about on the street that had been released, and they run up and hug me mm. and say, you were so kind, and that made a big difference to me. or You know, and to me, I felt like that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And then um, I made counselor, where I talked about that a little bit already. I had individual one-on-one time and took notes. And then I became a classification officer where you have to read their files, determine what risk they are to the public and what risk they are to other inmates and staff and give them classification numbers. And then... Is that like a number one through 10 or one through 100? It was one through five. Uh huh. So a, a public risk score. If somebody's uh, had any violence, or you know, it might be a three or a four mm-hmm. out of five, mm-hmm. and it even can be a five. Um, and then the institutional risk score is how likely are they to pray or have violence on other inmates or staff. And that also can be from a one to a five. Mm-hmm. And so a typical uh, medium security would be a three, three. But if you're going four and five, you're going up to max security. So you had a lot of power in in, in and, taking but, in the information and then. Right. But there was, there were rules. Right. You know, you didn't just whimsically totally <laughs> yeah it had you know it had like a metric a structure of, yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so and you took into consideration what the court um suggested as far as uh, their comments like uh whether they wanted to keep them as uh probation but was denied things like that mm-hmm. and then um i came as a deputy warden to the Correctional Release Center here in Tucson. Mm-hmm. It's called Zach Rack. Mm-hmm. 
So that was a whole nother experience dealing with women who uh, were transitioning from a prison system to working outside the, the prison all day and then coming back at night and the security issues and whole different world yeah. to deal with that. Do you know if those women who worked, were they paid a fair wage and what, did they keep that money or was that, is it like volunteer but it's called work? Um, they, we had a structure involved in this the system where they could get paid up to 50 cents an hour. However, outside uh, trustees and um, people who worked with the city, for example, got a, a higher pay. Mm-hmm. But it was structured so that a third they got, a third went into uh, their account, and a third went into savings, for example. So mm-hmm. that was part of the, the strategy to transition back into society and then I got promoted back to the men's facility and worked there and ended up there as a deputy warden of an 850 unit inmate population uh, maximum security unit Mm -hmm. for all the women and that was a whole nother world in fact, there were men there when I started there, and they transitioned because there were so many women going to prison. Mm-hmm. They needed the whole entire complex to be a women's facility instead of three units with men and one unit with women. Mm-hmm. So we transitioned that, and I was a part of that. And then, I wonder what changed. Was it during a, do you know why there were suddenly more women than previously? Was it during a... Well, I I think gang activity was a a real um, measurement of what was going on. There seemed women were getting more involved in gangs and more violent. But there was a lot of women who were abused who ended up killing their spouse or boyfriend or whatever mm-hmm. or abuse their children because they couldn't cope and so it just kept as str- stress built because of more educated and more complicated uh, things happening out in the world they got left behind because they were uneducated and they didn't take care of their medically take care of themselves and um there's so many factors, low self-esteem, but it just kept building mm-hmm. as population grew. Mm-hmm. Our population grew. Right. Interesting. You mentioned that one of your prison inmates was on death row, right? Um, a female mm-hmm. who was um, later released. And I actually spent a lot of time reading about her and, and the whole story, which is very confusing depending on what article you read, right. what actually right. happened. I guess I'm more interested in your interactions with her and, um, and yeah, what, like, so let's start there because you did interact with her, right? Right. Um, she was notorious for not cooperating or talking with staff or she was very quiet. She was somewhat compliant about what, 
you know, if it was time for her exercise, she'd come out. But then it got to the point where she wouldn't even come out of her room for for the one hour. Mm. And that's why I decided I needed to interact with her. And uh, my staff were not keen on me going up on the second run. Uh, the doors faced outside. It was not an indoor facility. All the doors oh, came okay. outside. Uh-huh. And and so uh, without a flak jacket, <laughs> uh, I would go up and I'd say, open the door. And I would let her come out on the run if there were no one no out for people. exercise. Uh-huh. And um, and we talked, and and she seemed receptive to that. So um, she would start coming out and spending her hour out if I stayed and talked with her. Mm-hmm. You know, there there was a cage, an outdoor cage mm-hmm. that they would be in, but we'd talk. There's other times that we just talked on the run or in her room. And she's actually a decent person, you would think, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, she always maintained her innocence, however, and uh, there's no way reading her file and the court documents what that she had some serious issues, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. with her child. Yeah. So. Yeah, she had a complicated story. And... I don't know. I I didn't uh, plant seeds necessarily with her, mm-hmm. but she wasn't used to getting a, a kindness either. Most people treated her pretty poorly. Yeah. Uh huh. Because she was death row inmate. Right. Bad bad guy. Right. You know, and she is, but her punishment was to go to prison on death row. Mm-hmm. My job is not to punish. My job is to interact and communicate and, you know, institute and follow rules. Mm-hmm. So, How do you interact with the gospel in a situation like that? You know, how did you? Well, a couple little things like I had, you know, those Christmas little lights that are plastic and has a little light bulb that you can put in your window and plug in? Mm-hmm. I kept one on burning on my desk and a Bible on my desk. Mm-hmm. And people would ask me about the light, and I would say, this little light of mine. And so I've known for that. And mm-hmm. uh, I kept the Bible there because it, it's me. It's part of my life. And I didn't shove it down anybody's throat or mm-hmm. even say anything. But they would say, oh, have you? do you have a verse? that you really like or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. opportunities kept happening mm-hmm. just because of that little thing. Right. You know? so. Well, and like you said, you know, many of of the wardens or, or guards would treat people based on what they had done. And you said that that wasn't your job. Right. Um, and I took the training literally. I mean, there were actually people who liked to jump start we call um just pick a fight and not a physical fight but you know just start edging them on until they react and then uh give them disciplinary action for acting out mm-hmm. when they started you know and i just think that's so wrong but i had uh, the opportunity to write tickets and 
there was not a quota, but they didn't feel like you were doing your job if you didn't write tickets. But I chose other options. Like, I could say, look, I can write you a ticket, and you go to disciplinary court, and you can lose privileges or whatever, or you can go scrub the shower up in your pod Mm -hmm. and uh, think about what this is all about. Mm -hmm. And they'd go clean the shower, and at least on my shift, they would never do that again, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so I think that it made a bigger impact. And, you know, I just didn't act like a lot of other staff. Yeah. 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 But I do how to work the system, and people did get in my face, and I did, you know, have to deal with that. And because I'm not an aggressive person or somebody who can out-shout <laughs> You know, I would let someone finish, and when they're done, very calmly say, are you done? Mm. And then, well, let's look at that and figure out what the main issue is and and see how we can deal with that. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of people took me as a weak person because of my patience and because of my willingness not to... uh, not not to overreact and, and stuff that I was just weak. Mm. But it took years. Some of the people who I supervised, it took years for them to actually understand and come back and say, now I can appreciate mm. the way you handled that. Or, you know, I, I started using a little more patience myself or whatever. Yeah. So. Hmm. That's, you know, leading in vulnerability and leading in patience is, I mean, it's important, especially for people who are feeling shame or anger. It doesn't help right. to to respond with right. anger. It just escalates. And they, sometimes and, they try to push you to mm-hmm. um, punish them because they f- think they need to be punished right. and they act out. So. Um, and you can relate kids are that way (laughs) right you know and I think inmates may be a little more polished children (laughs) a lot of times yeah you know so patience is a must and consistency just like a mother or Mm -hmm. a father consistency and fairness and firmness Mm -hmm. are three of the elements I think to a successful employee Mm -hmm. at that system so you've been out of this work for about 15 years you said yes yes what are some of the things that you take away from having worked in the prison system that you've utilized in your daily life well there's good and bad um one of the things that i took away was that i was very tainted Mm -hmm. you know I mean, you have to psych up and and deflate as you go to work and go home. And uh, I was tainted by the view, the files I had to read, the way that these inmates um, committed their crimes, the victims, you know, and you start seeing people differently. And it's not always fair, but you also... I already had a gift of discernment 
from mm. God, mm-hmm. from Jesus, and um, to further see inside their heads, you know, it, it wore on me. Mm-hmm. I did have lots of nightmares. Um, eventually, I have come around to feeling good again about people. <laughs> yeah, but it took a while to yeah, trust it, again. it did. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing is, I learned to say no. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to learn more boundaries for myself. And I had to understand how I ticked in order to be successful at dealing with others. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also, I think it just comes with age, feeling good in your skin and, and uh, being able to speak your mind uh, in a way that's non-threatening, um, get a point across, articulate the information. Uh, these are all good points that I developed while I was working there. Mm-hmm. So I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a strong Christian. Mm. And blessed that God, I mean, I don't fit the stereotype of a deputy warden, and still he put me there, mm-hmm. you know. And so a lot of the other deputy wardens, they couldn't figure me out or understand how I could run my unit so well and have the inmates be so respectful and the yard be so clean when I wasn't yelling and intimidating and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So I learned that if you know what you're doing, mm-hmm. you're confident, and you are, uh, if you act like Jesus mm-hmm. in everyday life, with, in your work, um, and of course, I'm. I can't do that all the time, you know. Sure. But I had a good role model to follow, and um, I think God blessed me because I listened and and tried to do. I didn't even have to try. It was like a gift, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Did you have, or do you have a a scripture that really spoke to you that you would think about in your work? Yes. And shared with staff and inmates <laughs> along the years. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart mm-hmm. and lean not on your own understanding. Mm-hmm. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Proverbs 3, Three, verses 5 and 6. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that was uh, my main nourishment <laughs> yeah. throughout because... Uh, there were scary situations. There were bad things happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And you have to take it all in. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody thought I could raise my voice. And when I did, it was because it called for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like if a fight broke out or something, then, you know, if you have two brothers and two sisters, you know how to yell. Right. You know. So, and surprise... Um, reactions are sometimes pretty cool. Yeah. Even uh, nobody wants to deal with a crazy woman. <laughs> so <laughs> if you act crazy, you know, at something, you know, they're going to back off and go, whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I use tricks yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing 
you know, the story of your work and are there any other closing thoughts that you have? Anything you... Um, one of the things that I have been able to do um, is there's a Florence Crittenden uh, Home for At-Risk Children or Court-Ordered Children, uh, pulled CPS pulled children from homes and stuff. And uh, I got involved with them Mm-hmm. Years, years, and years ago, and I was a regular panel member who went in to speak and give my testimony and and tell my story, including stuff that I did at the prison. And uh, it, it's been a real blessing to me and the young girls that are there. They're they're from twelve to eighteen. Mm-hmm. Once they turn eighteen, they're turned out. You know, mm-hmm. but um, so over the years, I've, I did that so many times, and it was always good for me and good for them. And uh, so, I still find ways that I keep being blessed mm-hmm. because I listen and expect God to use me. Mm. And so, whatever form it comes in, I, I'm I'm there mm-hmm. and I'm willing to do what he tells me to do and you know it might sound like you think I'm talking to him well I am talking to him and it's not like I hear his voice but I know when it's coming from him Mm -hmm. you know so I try to follow that and share that with others yeah in our pilgrim group we're studying Isaiah oh and so last night we were just talking about Isaiah's anointing and um, you know then when Jesus um, first, you know, speaks in the temple, he uses the same, you know, scripture from Isaiah 61. But it reminds me of that, that we are anointed and always walking towards um, in in various directions of Jesus's leading and, uh, and waking up each morning and asking, what can I do today to serve you and care for you? Right. And whether we know it or not, people watch. Mm-hmm. And they know, if they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not perfect people. I smoked while I worked there. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked me, if you're such a good Christian, why do you smoke? I said, because I'm a sinner like the rest of us. <laughs> you know, and I, I've taken that vice. Since then, of course, it's been... 25 years since I quit smoking and uh, 30 years since I quit drinking. Okay. So yeah. those are some of the the results of coming to God. Mm-hmm. It was a late in life conversion. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's so important for us to be vulnerable and to share that we are just like everybody else, even if you are watching what we're doing. I think sometimes when there are moments when maybe I'm in a, you know, trying to help the kids order at a restaurant or like in a line, you know, like, mm-hmm. or, or maybe we're just getting out of the car and I'm finishing up a lecture and then I turn around and somebody's standing there and they've right. heard me say things that maybe I shouldn't have said or yeah. maybe I should have said, but still feel guilty about it you right, know, or whatever. Right. And you, it's, it's hard to let people see us in our weakness, but at the same time, 
if everyone presumes that Christians are perfect, then it doesn't make, nothing makes sense, you know? I know um, I've been accused of being a hypocrite, of course, and brainwashed. Mm -hmm. And I say a couple of things. We're all hypocrites, Mm -hmm. number one. And number two, my brain needed washing, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I've been washed clean. Yeah. And uh, there is nothing like what that feels like. Yeah. You know? So Hmm. I just continue to um, thank God that he picked me. Yeah. And wrote my name in his book. Yes. You know? Mm -hmm. So there you have it in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm sure that we'll talk again in the future on the podcast. So you've been listening to Healing the City podcast with Adrian Crawford. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.